Hey, Pop. Luke. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I want to get started with something that's uh, important to me, and I understand you have a bit of a controversial opinion on, and that, of course, is New York pizza. Uh, <laughs> so I know you're a big fan of Domino's. Uh, I've ordered a lot of Domino's in my life, but never while in New York. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that obsession? Uh, so I really like McDonald's and I really like Domino's. Um, both of those are, you just know what you're going to get, right? So it's every single time you order, bang, done. Uh, it shows up quickly um, and, uh, and, and it's just consistent. And so I always joke that McDonald's is one of the best restaurants in America. And, uh, and the Domino's thing, uh, I actually used to not order Domino's. I like places like uh, Scars and, and a whole bunch of restaurants uh, that, that do pizza really well in New York, obviously. Uh, but I ordered Domino's one time um, and uh, people went nuts. They were like, what? <laughs> and so I did it again. And, and uh, after like two or three times, I realized like, I actually like the pizza, you know? And, and so that might be blasphemous to some, but, uh, but, but it's been a staple now. And may, maybe, uh, maybe I'll switch back. There's a couple of people trying to, to uh, convince me to stop doing it, but we'll see. See, I appreciate the consistency piece. I feel like for me, Joe's in the city kind of, you know, covers that. It's really consistent, but really solid pizza. Uh, but, you know, you don't get a lava cake from Joe's. So I guess there's something to be said. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, the consistency is a big piece of it. Uh, Joe's is definitely up there. I, I think that there's probably like, I don't know, five or six places that people would say are, uh, you know, are the top spots in New York. Joe's is definitely... Uh, up there so that, that's not a bad choice either i know you're having uh prez from barstool on the show and, and he's a big pizza guy so I look forward to hopefully you guys can cover a little bit more on that one uh with you today i want to you know talk through your story talk through your success building a huge uh digital media business between the podcast and the newsletter and now lunch money as well uh and also you're very well known as an investor uh early adopter in bitcoin and doing a great job promoting that as well as uh, general financial education for people who, uh, you know, just want to learn about these subjects in kind of plain English. Uh, but before we kind of get to that and what you're doing today, I'd love to start kind of earlier in your background. Um, understand you actually served six years uh, as a sergeant in the army. Uh, would love to hear, you know, going back that far or even further, if you like, kind of the beginning of your story. Yeah, um, went to uh, Bucknell University, uh, studied economics, uh, sociology, um, played football there, uh, was in the military, did a, a reserve contract, uh, got deployed uh, to Iraq, um, you know, spent, I think it was a 13-month deployment, uh, 2008, 2009 in um, Taji, Iraq, which is about 12 miles north of Baghdad, uh, basically doing route clearance and cordon and searches. Uh, it was... Um, you know, in hindsight, probably the best experience uh, that I had in terms of it taught me so much. It forced me to grow up really quickly. Uh, it really kind of opened my eyes to, uh, quote unquote, the real world uh, at the age of 20, turned 21 in the desert, um, and also gave me a lot of time to do to just think, uh, which I don't think a lot of kids my age had that. Uh, and so it kind of helped me answer like, what do I want to do? Um, so overall, great experience, uh, really taught me a lot of leadership lessons of kind of having to uh, lead men in combat that were older than me, uh, and, um, you know, j just understand how, uh, kind of leadership in an application sense works, not just in a book. Uh, and so that was really, uh, really helpful for me from a career standpoint, uh, went back, finished school, uh, then ended up uh, building and selling two small software companies, ran some teams at uh, both Facebook and Snapchat, uh, and then started investing full-time in 2016. And, uh, I think we've invested now like over a hundred, million 110 million dollars uh in early stage companies over the last four years so the software company is something i haven't heard a whole lot about is that something where you got back from the army finished your education and then uh, went straight and founded a company uh when i last semester that i was in school uh my father called me one day and he said uh all right, you know, smart ass, uh, here's the deal. You either got to get a job or you got to create a job. And I was like, well, what's the create a job thing? Never heard of that before. Like, that sounds pretty interesting, uh, which was really me just running from getting a job and, and having to grow up. Uh, and he basically was like, look, you start a company, right? If that's really what you want to do. Um, and so myself and uh, three friends from high school uh, started a business. Uh, frankly, uh, we had no clue what we were doing. We made every mistake in the book. 
Um, and uh, basically we're bumbling through uh, kind of just going off of intuition. Um, and so, uh, you know, by no means were these big companies or, or anything to kind of write home about in, in the sense of uh, big exits or anything like that, but uh, really allowed, I think, us to cut our teeth and, and understand um, you know, everything from building software to uh, how you do distribution, how you run a company, you know, incorporating companies and, and kind of all of that type of stuff that, uh, again, it's just blocking and tackling or, or kind of application and execution stuff that uh, if you've never done it before, uh, you just don't know. Right. And so kind of to do it at a young age was, uh, was really valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. I had a, a very formative uh, entrepreneurial experience myself dropping out after uh, freshman year of college and starting a company before going back and, and finishing my education. Uh, one thing that I took away from it, you know, a- along with all the lessons was uh, you can do something and not have this overwhelming success that you hear about from all these uber successful startups. Uh, and it can still lead to something really good. So for me, that was like finishing my education at a better university. For you, it, it sounds like that kind of led you to getting into the Silicon Valley world, moving to Facebook, and then eventually Snapchat. Is that kind of how the transition went? Pretty much, yeah. It, it was one of these things where, uh, again, um, you know, we were able to guide them to like soft landing exits. Uh, so in the general sense, like quote, unquote, it was a win, but given our aspirations, uh, we didn't feel like it at the time. Um, and then the second thing was, it definitely was provided this like launching pad. Um, I, I ended up at Facebook because I had met somebody there, uh, kind of when building the second company. Um, and then kind of once I got into the company, was able to, uh, to kind of thrive. Um, but, but obviously would have never had that opportunity if I hadn't kind of done the things beforehand. So you, you obviously spent a few years at Facebook and Snapchat, and now it's, it seems kind of obvious to, to me from the outside looking in, uh, you have this huge digital media brand and are kind of a, a master of Twitter and uh, did a really nice job of building a newsletter from the ground up and then a podcast from the ground up and all of this in a relatively short period of time. Do you think there was something um, you know, driving you that, that you naturally gravitated towards these social media type brands to kind of get in deep and understand what, what makes them tick? I think there's three pieces. So one is having worked at those companies, uh, I definitely have an advantage of understanding just how the companies think, how some of the algorithms work, um, why they make certain decisions, uh, what are kind of the best practices, you know, kind of all the things that you would expect. Um, I literally ran the Facebook pages growth team at one point, right, as product manager. And so uh, understanding uh, kind of that platform, there's a lot of similarities between uh, Twitter and other platforms. Uh, So that's an advantage. Two is I just naturally, uh, if you put metrics in front of me, I want to move them. And so uh, this whole idea of uh, almost it being a game, you know, oh, there's a follower account. Cool. Who can get the most followers, right? Oh, there's, you know, uh, retweets and favorites who can get the most. Uh, There's an email subscriber who can get the most email subscribers, right? A podcast has download metrics, like who can get the most downloads. Um, And so I think that's just kind of the competitive nature for me. And and I really do look at it as a game. Um, And and so when you kind of take that competitiveness uh, towards a metrics driven uh, type activity, like this digital content stuff, uh, naturally, I just get excited. and, And when you're passionate and excited about something, I think you tend to, you know, become good at it. Right. And so I think that's kind of an advantage. And then the third thing uh, is I think I've always been um, less technical and more marketing, branding, uh, psychological like inclined, right? And what I mean by that is uh, whenever there was teams, um, I definitely had opinions in terms of like how to build products, uh, user experiences, features, all that kind of stuff. But really where I think I spent kind of excelled was how do we actually get distribution for this product, right? And uh, there's the saying that I'm very fond of, which is first time entrepreneurs worry about the product. Second time entrepreneurs worry about distribution. Uh, I think it's a pretty common like YC saying. And um, to me, like I just always was fascinated with the idea of distribution. Um, and so being able to build out these digital content channels uh, is essentially that, right? It's building pipes where you own the distribution directly with um, kind of a fan base or an audience. Uh, and so when I started doing it, I didn't really know what the ultimate goal was. I just knew that it would be valuable in the future. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time uh, doing that and kind of found myself here today. Right. And, and so I want to get to Bitcoin, obviously, and some of your investment perspective, but I want to go with what you're talking about now and uh, fast forward a little bit post your experience in, with Facebook and Snapchat. Um, you've, you launched, I believe the order was kind of started building a Twitter. 
uh, and then launched a newsletter called the Pomp Letter, uh, helping people learn about, you know, basically get a basic financial education in kind of simple English, like I mentioned earlier. And then uh, soon after that, launched a podcast. And now you're, you're doing a YouTube channel called Lunch Money, a, a YouTube program uh, with, with your wife, which I've watched and it's, it's very entertaining. Uh, reminds me of like an ESPN show almost. Uh, and so I would love to hear, you know, um, coming from Facebook and snap, you, you mentioned that you kind of started to view these metrics as a game. Uh, and it's just natural for you to kind of want to improve whether it's favorites, followers, whatever it might be. Uh, does that translate over to where you are now, which is like, I've heard you answer the question on a couple other podcasts of, you know, what is your core advantage and, and how have you been so successful? And you've said the answer that people don't really like to hear is that you pretty much just outwork people. Like that's, you know, f first and foremost, that's what has led you to success. Uh, do you think it's the fact that this is a game and this is kind of fun for you that enables you to, to get up every day and go to work? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's, everyone wants like the magic bullet. Right. And, and what I mean by that is like, people are constantly asking me like, Hey, how do I do that? And what I tell them is like, you absolutely need to have some kind of strategic plan. Uh, that plan's like pretty self-explanatory. Um, and I've literally told, you know, thousands of people it and got on podcasts and kind of laid it out. Uh, the part that people don't want to hear is like, and then you just have to do it every single day for five years and like, and then you'll win. And people are just like, well, that, that's going to take too long. And they just don't want to put the effort in, right? And so uh, even today, like I, I always think back to this uh, story. Um, there's a guy, Ryan Leslie, who's a very famous music producer. Uh, he came on the podcast. He told me the story where basically uh, it was him, Jay-Z, and an audio producer uh, or an audio engineer. They were in uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, this is in the 2000s. Um, and uh, Jay-Z was obviously Jay-Z, very famous. Uh, and earlier that day, Jay-Z had gone, I think it was like the Sydney Opera House. He had done uh, Oprah Winfrey show. Then he'd gone out for the day with Beyonce and kind of did all the tourist stuff. He'd come back. He did some uh, you know, phone calls and stuff, eating dinner, whatever. And it was two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and Jay-Z was sitting in the uh, living room and they were uh, recording a song. And all of a sudden, he just jumps up and like throws his headphones off. And he basically starts screaming like, who the hell is going to catch me? I'm already Jay-Z and look at what I'm doing right now. Hmm. It was just this idea of like, it didn't matter how famous and how successful he was, he was still hungry, right? And, and he was willing to put in the work that even people who were much less famous and successful weren't willing to do. And obviously, Jay-Z continued to kind of uh, go on this meteoric rise. And so I think of that story a lot because it doesn't matter how much success you, you've already had or how big the platforms have gotten or the audience or whatever, like there's always a, another level you can get to. And, and it's just kind of the consistent effort. And so, you know, today on the day that we're recording this, uh, literally I woke up this morning, I wrote the, uh, the letter to, uh, to investors, took me about 45 minutes. Uh, I then recorded the uh, Lunch Money show you're talking about, um, kind of the daily YouTube show. Uh, we published a podcast, we'll publish a YouTube video later. Uh, I'm doing this interview. Uh, I've already done a call with uh, two separate calls with founders. Uh, I signed a term sheet this morning uh, for an investment I'm doing. And then I'm going to record four podcasts this afternoon. And it's just like, to me, like that's just a normal day, right? I, I don't look at it as like, oh, that's a ton of work. Um, but when I talk to other people, like I have to constantly remind myself, like when I tell somebody, hey, this is what you have to do, but you have to do it for five years, most people are going to get burnt out. Right. And so I've been doing this now for three years and it's just normal. Um, and, and so I think that part of my message to folks is like, one, here's the secret. It's just a lot of work. Uh, but also two is uh, like, if you think you're going to get burnt out or you really don't know, is this what I want to do for sure? Uh, they don't even get started because it's so hard and, and it's going to take such a long time that you're going to end up, you know, getting three, six, nine months in and they're just going to quit. And that's the number one thing I see as to why people don't end up being successful uh, in doing this stuff is they ultimately just give up, right? And so, um, I, I don't know. It, it's just a lot of work. And if that's what you like and you enjoy it and you're passionate about it, you'll be successful. If not, just like anything else, then you won't be. And, and it's kind of simple. I appreciate you sharing. That was actually going to be my next question, kind of what is a day in the life of Pomp? And it sounds like today is crazy, you know, to, for a normal person to hear, but just kind of business as usual for you. Uh, so I want to dig into that a bit because it is pretty absurd. Like uh, you might, you know, not be able to realize that doing it every day, and I'm sure you have some appreciation, but uh, the stuff that you were naming, starting with the letter and signing a term sheet, doing this conversation with me, a few podcasts in the afternoon, 
you know, releasing a couple episodes, doing the lunch money, it's, it's a full day. That's a week for a lot of people, I, I would say. That's a productive week too. Uh, so I'd like to kind of dig into the best, you know, that you can get at it as to what helps you to have this, I, I, think, I think on the one hand, like focus, on the other hand, discipline, um, being able to tune out distractions, being able to stay with it and persistent for years, like you said, instead of weeks or months. Um, what makes you, you know, what makes you who you are in that, in that way? I don't know for sure. Um, one of the things that, uh, as I've tried to kind of self reflect on, um, you know, why am I doing it the way that I'm doing it? How I think about it that may be different from other people. Uh, one thing I've been able to identify is like playing football, um, kind of most of my life. Uh, there was always this saying of like, just do your job. Right. And so, uh, I think it comes from uh, Nick Saban, uh, who's a famous college football coach and, <clears throat> basically the idea is uh, if you have 11 people on the field uh, and let's say you're on offense, every play is drawn up to be a touchdown, right? So there's no offensive play that they ever draw up that isn't supposed to score a touchdown. Um, and the key to the play is every single one of those 11 people has a job to do. So if you're the center, you know, on this play, your job is to snap the ball, take a step with your right foot, post your right arm, you know, take two steps with your left foot, uh, hinge block and like seal off the, the defender in front of you. And that's all, every, all of that complexity is just for you to focus on. If you're the center and you're worried about what the right guard or the wide receiver or the quarterback's doing, you're going to mess up your job and the play gets blown up. And so if every single person on the field of those 11 guys does their job and just focuses on their job, every play will be a touchdown. Now, inherently, every play is not a touchdown. And so somebody messes up their job. But the idea is like, don't worry about kind of the end result. Just worry about the process or worry about like what your job is on this one specific play. So now if you pull that back to business, the way that I think about it is like, I spent um, a lot of time uh, kind of backing into like, what's my job today? And I just break it down on a day-by-day -day basis. And so I know every single day that I've got to write the letter, I've got to record lunch money, maybe I've got to record a podcast episode and I've got to you know, do four phone calls with founders. And I don't worry about like what I did yesterday or what I'm supposed to do tomorrow or what's going to happen in a week or a month or how long I've been doing this or, you know, am I heading in the right direction or any of that stuff. I just focus on like today and on the micro level, my job today is to do this. And I just knock that out. And I just do that day in, day out, day in and day out. And I actually think that part of the challenge um, with having that mentality is a lot of people get distracted, right? They do something for a week, two, three, four weeks and they're like, oh my God, it's not working. And so they stop. But what ends up happening, especially with content on the internet, is you can't predict what's going to be successful and what's not going to be successful. Um, and so recently, you know, a great example is I took basically the playbook, if you will, of what I did. Um, and uh, one of my younger brothers was like, look, I want to do this, but in sports. So if you kind of think of what Darren Rovell did 25 years ago, like, can he just recreate that today on digital platforms, right? And kind of cover the money and business behind sports. And so we sat down and we basically structured it out. Hey, if you're going to do this, here's the plan. And you just got to do it every day for five years. And so he got lucky in that in the first kind of 10, 11 weeks, he's gone viral multiple times on the internet. He's built an email list. He's got a bunch of followers now. Like you can see that it's starting to work. Um, but there was weeks, right, where he was actually doing it and nothing was growing. And he was looking at me like, hey man, uh, it, it, should I change something? And it was, you know, luckily he has me who's got the experience and discipline of just knowing like, no, just keep doing it. And then you randomly one day, like something will go viral or, 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 you know, you'll get a big influx of followers or, or subscribers or whatever. Uh, but if you don't have somebody there telling you every day, like, just keep going, uh, it can be lonely. It can be difficult and you can lose discipline, all that kind of stuff. And so I think that, um, you know, now that we've been able to replicate this kind of multiple times, uh, the secret really is just having a very simple strategy that you just continuously execute and stay disciplined on. Uh, and then what you allow is almost like this compounding effect, right? People talk about compounding in finance. Well, like there's compounding on the internet, meaning that every day, let's say you get, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, 10 basis points of growth on your Twitter account. Well, eventually like that stacks up right? And you're going to end up having a really, really big following. But most people don't get excited about that. One, they don't think about the compounding. And then two is they want to see how do I go from 1,000 followers to 5,000 followers? They're not excited about going from you know, 1,000 to 1,010 followers. And so I think that you've really got to break down, kind of understand uh, that discipline and that compounding. Just let it play its course. And over a long period of time, you'll win. That's awesome. There's a lot of wisdom in there that I want to break down. And, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, but it sounds like one of the overarching themes is to take things one day at a time. Uh, and that's certainly something that I try to do. Uh, the difficult part is that 
you can't kind of expect things to happen one day at a time and, and be a huge, you know, you might go viral one day, but you're not going to go from uh, no followers to, you know, several hundred thousand followers overnight. It takes that compounding, like you said. Uh, and so for a lot of people, I think it's difficult, but it sounds like that's one thing that you've been able to stick to pretty hard is taking things, you know, what do I need to do today? Um, beyond that, I think it's interesting, even uh, your, your pizza preference almost reveals a little bit about the way that you, you see things, I think, is this consistency where you kind of know what you're going to get uh, and what you're doing with the newsletter or the podcast or even on Twitter. Uh, I've found that your, you know, online presence is a very consistent thing where and it, that was reflected in kind of how you described it and that, you know, you just have to do the same thing over and over again. And eventually, uh, you know, it'll hit here and there and it'll compound over time. Uh, and I thought it was funny as well how you mentioned, you know, it's, it's a simple playbook. And then you said, like, kind of in passing, like, you just have to do it every day for five years. And I think that's got to be a part of what uh, makes you different is that that is daunting for a lot of people. But for you, it just sounds like, uh, you know, as long as you're doing things that you like to do, um, that's the dream rather than something that's daunting. Uh, and so on that point, um, you've kind of over time developed onto these different channels and doing, you know, there are different activities, right? So like the newsletter is writing or, uh, you know, it might involve some analysis. The podcast is talking with interesting people, having interesting conversations. Uh, and then lunch money is kind of talking about what's going on in the news and relating it back to relevant subjects. Uh, how did you come upon these things as areas of interest that you knew you could stick with for five years? I think there's uh, one piece on this like consistency that's really important. And then I'll answer this question directly. But uh, one of the things I think a lot about, so th there used to be this competition uh, uh, we played football in college, right? Which was uh, during the off season, there was basically one week. And that one week was like, think of it kind of like the Olympics almost. And they had a bunch of challenges. Everyone did the challenges. There was a point system and like whoever would win, um, you know, would kind of accumulate the most points would end up being the winner. Uh, and the key to that thing was everyone used to always focus on like, oh, I'm the fastest guy on the team. Like I'm going to win. And then another guy back, like, I'm the strongest guy on the team. Like I'm going to win. And I would consistent, consistently place really well, right? I don't think I ever won, but I was always in like the top five, if you will. And what people didn't realize was that it wasn't about being the fastest or the strongest. It was being pretty good at everything. Right? It was being kind of like well-rounded or, or more of a generalist than just being the fastest or the strongest. Because what ends up happening is if you're the fastest, you're definitely not anywhere near the strongest right? For, for most people. And if you're the strongest, you're most likely not the fastest either. And so there, there's kind of these big disparities. For me, like I was always above average fast, above average strong, whatever. And, and so you end up accumulating the points you end up uh, placing really well in this competition. One of those uh, challenges that they would have uh, was literally to jump up on the uh, pull-up bar hold on to the bar and just hang there. Last person standing wins, right? Whoever's still hanging at the end wins. And so what you end up realizing is like, it's just a, a mindset thing. It actually has nothing to do with strength, right? It's, it's just in your mind. And if you can convince all the other people that you're going to hang forever, they eventually just give up and they'll literally just drop. And so I think of, content in a very similar way of like, I see people all the time, they come out and they're, you know, really hot and heavy right out of the gate. And they're so excited about creating something. And I just say to myself, like, when they're gone, I'll still be here. Right. And like that mentality of like, it's not who goes the fastest. It's whoever stays around the longest, they end up winning. And, and so it's this idea of like, just don't die. Um, I think it's really, really important for people. And when you have that mentality, you then don't get caught so much in like, oh, did I get enough followers today? It's all about the longevity. It's not about kind of like the acceleration, if you will, um, in many cases. So with that said, uh, in terms of uh, the content platforms and kind of choosing them, uh, I went one by one, which I think is really important as well. So a lot of people will come out of the gate and they'll say, hey, I want to create, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a digital content on the internet. And they'll say, okay, I need to be on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, email, podcast, and like uh, do live streaming on Twitch. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, how are you going to do all of that? Right? Instead, what I did was I just did Twitter for almost a year and a half. I literally, I didn't have any other platforms. I just used Twitter. Then I went and uh, I did the email and then I just had the podcast. And then for a year and a half, I just did Twitter, email and podcast. And that was it. And then in January of this year, I added YouTube, right? And so now I've got four platforms, 
but I've only added one like every nine months or so on average. And so when you think of it that way, what it allows you to do is one, build the muscle memory of, okay, how does this platform work? How can I structure my day so I can create enough content on the platform so that I don't burn out, but I also am producing enough to actually grow the platform. Then also on top of that, I can leverage the platforms I've previously built to help me grow the new one. So the YouTube channel that I've got went from, you know, under 5,000 subscribers to over 100,000 subscribers in like seven or eight months. But I only was able to do that because I'd already built the email, Twitter, and the podcast, right? And so what you, you start to realize is like by going platform by platform and kind of focusing on one at a time, each time that you focus on a new one, it will be easier to grow it because you can leverage the existing platforms where you have a big audience. If you start out on day one, and let's say you want to grow your YouTube, but you're also growing six other platforms at the same time. One, your attention is divided, so you don't get a focus on that one thing. And then also, two is you don't have an audience on those other platforms to help you grow the YouTube. So it's kind of like, rather than go kind of an inch deep and a mile wide, you want to go a mile deep and an inch wide. And, and by focusing on it, that's where you know, I've at least found success, and I think other people will as well. That's all really, you know, good information to, for people to, especially who want to build platforms online or otherwise to, to take on. I think um, I really like the example that you used of the pull-up bar. Uh, reminded me of someone, I'll go out on a limb. Not sure if you're familiar with uh, David Goggins. Yep, of course. Yeah. So he's all about, as you know, hardening the mind. Uh, and you mentioned how it's mind over body. It was actually his uh, book on tape and just hearing him speak a few times that kind of convinced me I needed to uh, you know, intentionally put in effort to get mentally tougher. Uh, and so the way I personally did that was um, running really far. You know, that's kind of what he does uh, or, or the most common thing that he does. And so I started running and running and running. And it's a very easy way or it was for me to realize on, on the one hand, to your point, it's not about how fast you go. The goal is not to die. So you just keep running until, you know, you can't run anymore. And what I realized is that it's never – you know, unless you're physically collapsing and same with like hang, hanging on the bar, unless you're physically like, I don't know what would even happen your shoulder pops out or whatever it is, uh, or in running, if you physically, you know, fall over while you're running, it's not your body that's stopping you, right? It's, it's your mind saying, all right, that's enough. Like, all right, this, this sucks. And this is really hard and I'm done. Um, and so continuing to push further and further. And it also, for me, it helped build kind of a growth mindset as well. Um, is there anything that you do consciously to work on your mind to build that mental toughness and the ability to kind of just keep going? I think the biggest thing is just doing uncomfortable things, right? And, and whether it's the, you know, Tim Kennedy's, Joe Rogan's of the world, the David Goggins, you know, there's all kinds of these people out there who, uh, who kind of push this stuff. Jocko's another one. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, they all have the same message, which is just, if you live a comfortable life, uh, you will naturally have a decay in your mental toughness and uh, kind of your, your, your sharpness, right? Uh, There's a saying uh, when I grew up um, that iron sharpens iron. And it was always kind of this phrase that was thrown around uh, as a way to get people to do things they didn't want to do. Right. And I think of that often in terms of, uh, dude, I want to wake up this morning and write and record stuff and, and spend all day doing this stuff. There's days where I don't want to do it. Right. But if that ever happens, all I say to myself is just get to lunch, right? And when I get to lunch, I just get to dinner. And, and I think that um, while those days are few and far between, having the mental toughness to know the difference between, I don't want to do this anymore, like from a, from a lifestyle standpoint and from a, uh, I want to go focus on doing other things because I'm not happy versus just, ah, man, you know what? I, I slept 30 minutes less last night and I'm a little tired, uh, but I can push through this. Like that mental toughness, uh, when it comes to work, to me is like table stakes. Now, I've had the pleasure of playing football, of you know, going to war and, and kind of doing all these different things. And so it's unfair of me to kind of uh, lecture other people on like, hey, you should be mentally tough. Like I just had life experiences that uh, put me in a very different situation. What I think people who haven't had those experiences can do is just do the uncomfortable things, right? If you don't want to go on that long run, go do it, right? If you don't want to sit down and do something, do it. And what you start to realize is like what once you feared actually becomes like muscle memory. Right. And so that thing that you didn't like to do now, it's just a, a thing you do every day. Um, but, but ultimately like you've got to make the mental decision to go do it. Um, and I think frankly, that's the, 
hardest part for people is, you know, we live in a world where like you can be soft. You can just go sit on the couch, turn on Netflix and like who cares what you're supposed to do. And when that's the thing that wins out, then of course you're not going to be productive. You're not going to kind of accomplish the goals that you have. Um, and I think the people who are able to have the self-discipline to avoid that stuff, uh, you know, they're the ones who win because they just put the work in. Yeah, look, it's inspiring to hear this stuff from you, you know, on your reading your newsletter and listening to your podcast. A lot of times on the newsletter, it's obviously about whatever you're writing about. And on the podcast, you focus on the guest, which is what I try to do as well. Um, but you don't get to hear what Pomp thinks on, on all these things and what makes Pomp great. And I think that these are really excellent frameworks. You mentioned, you know, not only are they things that you think are working, but they're things that you were able to pass on to your brother and then see them, you know, repeatable that they work again. Um, and so I think it's really interesting and a lot of people listening might want to rewind and take some notes on, on some of these things and try to apply them to their own lives. I don't have the answers, but I got a lot of opinions in terms of the things that have worked for me. That's great. So, uh, let's go to another set of opinions. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Uh, you talk about this a lot, obviously. I, I just watched last night, uh, you had a conversation on CB CNBC with Kevin O'Leary. Uh, people know as the mean guy from Shark Tank. Uh, really smart investor, but not such a smart sounding counter, in my opinion, to your argument on why you're bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, let's take it from the top before, we, before I even get into that argument. Uh, you specialize in breaking down complex topics uh, into easy to understand language. And I'm taking that right from your newsletter uh, in terms of what your specialty is. So I've had a couple people on the show and had them kind of share their perspective on Bitcoin. If you're going to explain it to my grandmother, how do you tell her what Bitcoin is and why it's important? Yeah, I basically describe it as uh, there's two things. There's uh, the money you grew up on and the money that the kids of today are going to grow up on. Um, the money that you grew up on has a very specific structure. Uh, it is controlled by a, um, a group of people uh, who happen to also be backed by a government. Um, and the structure of it is for them to uh, print more and more of it to incentivize you financially uh, to spend the money that you have in your bank account. And that's, you know, fiat currency. Uh, the money that kids are growing up on uh, is not controlled by anyone. Um, they use special technology uh, to basically have it uncontrolled. It's not backed by a government and you can't create any more. And there's a whole bunch of debate as to what's you know, good about that, bad about that, whatever. But at the end of the day, that's really all it comes down to is one's digital, one's not. Uh, one of them is controlled uh, by government, one's not. Uh, and then one has an inflationary structure and one has a deflationary structure. Um, and, and basically the idea here is uh, there is a debate as to will fiat currency reign supreme uh, in the coming decades uh, or will kind of a, a decentralized uh, asset like Bitcoin reign supreme that's how a market gets made. Um, and so literally there are people betting uh, billions of dollars on the outcome of this kind of debate. Um, I'm on one side of it uh, and we'll see what happens. Great. And I'm, you know, just to be clear, I'm actually going to have my grandma listen to that. So I hope that it, it gets her to, uh, you know, take the plunge and put 1% in Bitcoin. I'll certainly be right there to, to help her do it. Um, you talk about the importance of, of putting 1% in Bitcoin as kind of a starter point, And I've taken that as kind of a guide for helping a number of people uh, close to me get involved with Bitcoin by putting 1% in. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, 1% of someone's money isn't going to make or break their portfolio. It's, you know, you lose 1% of your money, no matter how rich or poor you are. Um, it's not significant in the scheme of all of your money. Uh, but at the same time, once you have that 1% in, I think you described how, you know, it, it incentivizes you to learn more uh, and then as you learn more, you can kind of invest more along with your understanding. Uh, is that something where, where you focus on, you know, people in your life, like who you know personally outside of crypto? Is that the strategy that you kind of take to them? My entire argument is this idea of get off zero, right? So uh, I don't know what the right exposure is for each individual person. It depends on your financial goals, the position you're in, your income, uh, what your expenses are, where you live in the world. There's all kinds of inputs that uh, without 
you know, spending a lot of time with somebody, it's really hard to tell them what the exact exposure is. Should it be, you know, 1%, should it be 5%, should it be 50%? It, it all depends. Uh, but what I do know is 0% is the wrong uh, answer, right? In terms of you can't have no exposure. Uh, and so that's really the message, just get off zero, right? Figure out what the right percentage is for you, but you got to have some exposure to this asset. Uh, and it goes back to uh, kind of three core uh, ideas. One is um, it's a non-correlated asset. So uh, it's very or very low correlation to traditional assets. So when you add it to a portfolio, it can reduce the overall risk of the portfolio. Two is it's asymmetric, uh, meaning that uh, the downside risk is drastically outweighed by the upside uh, potential. Um, so kind of in a 10 to one or, or even uh, greater uh, scenario. And so every investor wants to have these asymmetric type opportunities in their portfolio. Uh, and then the third thing is uh, it is something where capital and talent is already flowing into the space. Uh, and historically, it makes a lot of sense to kind of follow the capital and follow the talent, right? Um, and so I think those three factors uh, are pretty strong arguments to just get off 0% exposure. Uh, and then people got to figure out what the right number is for themselves. So the first thing you mentioned in terms of the three factors was uh, the fact that it's non-correlated to the rest of the market, or at least low correlated. Um, a lot of people I've talked to have wanted to know, you know, if it's so non-correlated, why uh, when the market crashed in, in March and then, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the market started to go down again. And both times Bitcoin and uh, the rest of cryptos have generally tended to go down with it. Uh, and I've heard you explain how, you know, this is more so the result of kind of a, a liquidity crunch. Could you kind of talk about how you see, uh, you know, the fact that it is showing correlated, but in a long run, hopefully, uh, you know, it seems that it won't be. Yeah. So basically the idea is uh, during a liquidity crisis. Um, so let's go kind of back in history, 2008 uh, gold, which is generally thought to be a non-correlated asset. Um, and gold went down 30% in, in the summer of 2008. Uh, why does that happen? Well, basically when uh, there's an economic crisis or uncertainty, all of a sudden everyone freaks out, right? Everyone's very kind of nervous about what the future holds. And so what they want is they want cash, meaning US dollars. Uh, and in order to get cash, they have to sell their assets. So they literally look at their portfolio and they say, what can I sell right now to get cash? And so anything with a liquid market is sold, right? Whether it's stocks, it's bonds, it's uh, gold, it, it, any asset that they can sell, they're going to sell because um, they want cash. And so they're actually willing to sell it at a lower and lower price, right? It's this idea of like, I want cash right now. I don't care if it's down 10%, sell it. If it's down 15%, sell it. Just get me cash. Um, and so what you get is you get so much sell pressure that these assets fall really, really quickly. So in 2008, we saw gold go down 30%. Then what ends up happening is during a liquidity crisis, the government says, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. You know, all asset prices are falling really, really fast. We have to do something. They step in and what they do is they flood the market with uh, liquidity. And so this is quantitative easing, interest rate manipulation, et cetera. Uh, and so they did that in 2009. And then what we saw with the gold price is gold went up 200% from there and ended up hitting an all-time high. Well, why does that happen? Because as soon as people see the market being flooded with dollars, they say, wait, I don't want to hold cash. I want to get back into assets because what you're going to do is you're going to devalue the dollar and asset prices are going to go up, right? And so obviously then gold goes up 200% hits an all-time high. Now take that same scenario of kind of liquidity crisis, assets go down, government steps in, floods the market, asset prices go up. Uh, take that same mechanism and apply it to the last kind of six, seven months, right? In March, we have a liquidity crisis. There's a bunch of uncertainty because of the pandemic and lockdowns. Everyone starts selling assets. Equities are down 30%. Gold's down 12 to 15%. Bitcoin drops 50% in a single day, right? All, the, all these assets are selling off. Government steps in much faster than they ever have before and with much more firepower than they ever have before. So $3 trillion, they do it within days. Um, and all of a sudden, what do you see? Asset prices immediately stop falling and they turn and they go the other direction. So now we've got Bitcoin up about 50% year to date. We've got gold up about 20% year to date. Equities are up um, you know, at or near all-time highs. Um, and so when you look at this, what you start to realize is, wait a second, the quote unquote correlation has nothing to do with the individual assets themselves. This is a completely manipulated market by the Federal Reserve through their quantitative easing and interest rate manipulation. And so you can look at these periods and say, you know what, on a rolling 12 month basis, uh, Bitcoin's correlation has jumped from 0.15 before the pandemic to now it sits at about 0.24. Right. And so that's a pretty material jump. It's almost double 
right, where it used to be. And so during a liquidity crisis, all asset correlations go towards one. So gold, Bitcoin, um, you know, bonds, equities, everything correlates towards one because it's now being manipulated by uh, central banks. When you get out of the liquidity crisis, you'll see the correlations go back to kind of quote unquote normal or where they were um, beforehand. And so over a long period of time, kind of across market cycles, uh, Bitcoin has had a correlation of about 0.15, which is very, very low compared to traditional assets. And so I think that long-term Bitcoin still is going to be a non-correlated asset. Short-term in these liquidity crises, everything's correlated. Bitcoin, gold, stocks, et cetera. And so people just have to remember like, looking at a point in time and kind of lines on a chart uh, is very different than taking a, a kind of much more holistic long-term view and actually using the math behind correlation to understand exactly what's happening. Right. And it's, you know, everything, obviously the way that we look at assets, everything's priced in dollars. And so with this liquidity crunch, you know, the, the prices of everything are going up in terms of dollars, whether it's Bitcoin or the market, et cetera. And I think the hope for a lot of people, who are bullish on Bitcoin is that um, that very inflation of the dollar, that lowering of the purchasing power of the dollar, which seems to be accelerating now more than ever with the Fed pumping in trillions of dollars, quantitative easing addiction, I think, is, as you've referred to it, um, that all actually lends itself towards the bull case for Bitcoin. Is that right? Of course. And, and I think that it, it's a situation where um, if you think of like a Paul Tudor Jones argument, right? So Paul Tudor Jones uh, in the last couple of months has put 2% of his assets in Bitcoin. And his argument basically was when you have this level of manipulation and quantitative easing going on, uh, investors are going to fear inflation. Doesn't matter if inflation actually comes or not. They just think inflation's coming. Therefore, they're going to run to inflation hedge assets, right? So think of precious metals, Bitcoin, real estate, uh, in some weird world stocks are now serving as a, uh, as a inflation hedge. And when that that happens, what you're going to see is uh, all of those inflation hedge assets are going to appreciate in price. The question is, which asset do you want to have exposure to? Well, obviously, the one that's going to appreciate the most, his conclusion was it's going to be Bitcoin. And the thought process there is just it's a smaller uh, cap market um, or smaller market cap asset. So you need less dollars to move the market, right? So if you put a billion dollars in Bitcoin versus a billion dollars in gold, Bitcoin's going to move more. Uh, and then second is uh, it's more volatile from a, from Bitcoin standpoint. And so uh, that volatility works against you when things draw down, right? Gold only drew down 15%. Bitcoin was down 50% in March uh, or in a, day, in a single day in March. But now when we go the other direction and asset prices are going up, that same volatility works for you. So Bitcoin is up much more than gold is. They're up for the same reasons. It's just that one is more volatile than the other. And so on the bull case, if you're long an asset, you want to be long the most volatile asset because that's the one that's going to go up the most. And so Bitcoin uh, tends to be the, uh, the winner there. And that's why he put 2% of his assets in. Yeah, I love that piece by uh, by Paul Tudor Jones. It's it's basically, you know, it's called the great inflation, if I remember correctly. And he's basically talking about the different alternatives for defending against inflation of the dollar. And he talks about gold, he talks about the stock market, uh, and he talks about Bitcoin, and, and he has his team, which, you know, this is no, like, crypto enthusiast, just, you know, off Twitter, this is a, a major figure in the hedge fund world. Uh, and I think he said something like, you know, something, he basically scored all the assets in terms of uh, just kind of generally how they are, uh, you know, one to 10 or one to 100 or whatever in comparison to the dollar as a defense against inflation. Uh, and the scores, you know, Bitcoin wasn't as high as gold, if I remember correctly, but it was like pretty close. Uh, and then he looked at the market caps, like you said, and he was like, I think he said like something's wrong here. Uh, and my bet is that it's the price of Bitcoin. Uh, and, and I thought that was pretty interesting to see from such a large institutional investor and, you know, maybe a sign of things to come. I think that's the exact way to look at it is uh, he, he's probably more right than wrong on that one. And so it's interesting, you know, I hear, you know, very successful investors like him coming from that perspective and he's clearly done his homework and, and he's, he's got a whole team doing their homework and bringing things to him, I'm sure. Uh, and then, you know, I mentioned at the top of this subject, your conversation with Kevin O'Leary, where, you know, I think I've, I've loved watching him on Shark Tank. I think he has an awesome perspective on a lot of investments, but I couldn't help but watch your guys' argument and just be like, you know, I've, I've heard people who are bearish on Bitcoin and don't believe in Bitcoin. I've heard good arguments, not good enough to convince me not to put a lot of my own investment portfolio in Bitcoin, but, uh, you know, good logical threats that I, that I can understand and appreciate. And I think I feel like they understand my perspective as well on why I'm bullish on Bitcoin. 
Uh, whereas with you guys, you know, from my perspective, you're giving these great points on behalf of Bitcoin and he's coming back with like Bitcoin's garbage, like the whole thing's a scam. And he just clearly hasn't kind of done his homework on it. Um, and, it and it's crazy to me that something with such a large potential, like, you know, investors, great investors talk, like, I don't know if Tudor Jones knows Kevin O'Leary, I guess not, but you'd think that people would at least put in enough time to come to a, a more, you know, thorough reason for, for being against Bitcoin rather than just the, oh, it's a scam or, oh, I don't really know what it is. It's garbage argument. Is this something you're surprised to kind of still see where people just don't really get it yet? I think that it's um, a direct correlation to how much time they spent on something, right? Me meaning that um, if you look at, uh, let's say that uh, he has spent one twentieth of the amount of time he spent on other assets. Of course, he's not going to understand it very well, right? But the more time that he spends, the more information he learns, probably the more bullish he becomes. And so what you find is like the people who are the most bullish are the people who spent the most time learning about it, right? But that also means that you got to be open-minded and, and things like that. And so what I ultimately think is happening for a lot of these folks is uh, one, they saw, saw it go from $1,000 to $20,000 in 2017 and then fall 85% that immediately turns a lot of people off. Well, as now they've seen, hey, this didn't die. It actually is coming back. They start to say, wait a second, maybe I should spend some time here. The second thing is where are they getting their information from? It's really hard to like go online. Imagine going, somebody saying to you, hey, go learn about Bitcoin on Twitter. And they say, okay, who should I follow? And they're like, go follow Crypto Whale, right? Or go follow this other like anonymous account. But those accounts actually have great information. It's just really hard for legacy finance folks to kind of wrap their head around. They're, they're basically following somebody that they don't know. And so I think that's kind of a new um, environment for them. Uh, and then, so the, what that leads to is like the way to convert them and kind of open their minds uh, is to basically get them to sit down, speak in their language and explain to them, here is why this is important. And if you start out with, we're going to separate money from the state, all kinds of hell breaks loose because they just, they can't wrap their head around it. If you instead start out with, hey, let me explain to you why a non-correlated asymmetric asset like Bitcoin could be really beneficial for your portfolio. And then once they explain, they ask you, okay, that's interesting. Like I get why that would work. Now explain to me, why is it non-correlated? Why is it asymmetric? How does it actually work from a technological standpoint? Like they become curious, but you've got to find the right entry point to explain it to them. You can't start off with kind of the full you know, blown Bitcoiner uh, kind of talk track. Cause the second that you do that, um, they kind of shut off their eyes, glaze over and, and they won't pay attention. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And kind of knowing your audience, uh, I think is, is part of your specialty. Um, would you mind telling us how you got into Bitcoin in the first place, how you discovered it and then how you got involved? Uh, well, the first uh, time I ever heard about Bitcoin was in 2014. I was at Facebook uh, and there's people talking about it there. And I literally was um, probably the most idiotic thing I ever did. Uh, I didn't even Google it. Like just couldn't have cared less. Uh, and so that uh, ended up uh, not being a great decision. Um, but then again, in I think it was 2016 or maybe 15. I can't, I can't actually remember when it was, but let's call it 15 or 16, probably 16. Um, there's a, uh, a young kid that I had met when he was in high school. It's very obvious that he was an intelligent guy. His name's uh, JP Barrick. He basically uh, sat me down and was like, look, you got to pay attention to this thing. Uh, and he was showing me uh, mining. And so uh, he basically convinced me to uh, go ahead and buy some, uh, some mining. We did a GPU mining. Um, and, uh, then I had money invested. I was paying attention. Uh, 2017 happens. And I think like the ether price went from uh, like $10 to 30 to a hundred between like, I don't know, February to like May or something. Uh, and I was sitting there mining it and, and just was like, Oh my God, what is this thing? And so I started paying more attention to it um, and kind of just fell deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Uh, and eventually just said, look, I want to go focus on this with the majority of my time. I haven't heard too many people who got involved and went straight to mining. How does that look like, like as an investment for you? Uh, so for me, um, I basically found somebody who could do like hosted mining. Um, so I was very familiar with the data center business and, and kind of cloud hosting and things like that. Uh, and so basically the way that this company worked, they were set up in 
Uh, I think Washington State, uh, they had really cheap power. You basically sent them money. They uh, acquired the machines for you. They set them up in their hosting facility. And then you basically got payouts on a daily basis. Um, and so you paid them kind of like a hosting fee, similar to what you would do in, in kind of a cloud computing environment. And so that was a mechanism that I was pretty familiar with. Uh, it was just different computers. And, and we were basically getting paid in a different currency is kind of how I thought about it. Uh, and so I did a little test there. Um, and then uh, the more and more I realized like, hey, this is how it works. And, and I got comfortable with it. Uh, then uh, my partner, Jason Williams, and I decided to go and start building facilities that uh, we had direct control over. So rather than do a hosted type environment, basically just build the facility ourselves. Um, we had access to some pretty cheap power, ended up building out um, a facility uh, in North Carolina and, uh, and then kind of you know, just went deeper and deeper from there. That's interesting. And obviously you've expanded kind of your footprint in, in Bitcoin and started writing about it and having a lot of people in the industry on the podcast and everything like that. But it's an interesting entry point through, uh, through the mining business. Uh, and, you know, I could talk about Bitcoin for days with you probably, but uh, last thing I want to cover uh, today is, is your rolling fund. Um, you've opened a rolling fund for people to be able to give you some money to invest uh, given all of your connectivity and ability to uh, you know, assess investments. Could you talk a little bit about, about that and why you got started? Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the key piece being, um, you know, I think early stage investing is just an access game. So uh, if you can get access to the best deals, then you can drive, um, you know, attractive returns. If you can't, then uh, early stage ventures are really hard business. And so uh, from pure access standpoint, uh, I know a lot of the best investors in the world. Uh, I talk to them about deals that they're doing, deals that I'm doing. Uh, and then I'm able to convince founders to, uh, to have me on their cap table because uh, I can provide specific things to them that other investors can't, right? So kind of, uh, you know, having good network and all that kind of stuff is table stakes. To me, it, there's much more. Um, and so I think that uh, when you look at it through that lens, uh, you end up realizing um, having an early stage fund uh, is really valuable if you have the connectivity and access, which I do. And that was really the idea behind the, the rolling fund was it was a great way to do a, uh, a solo GP type structure. Uh, I think that it's going to be pretty disruptive to venture capital because it's a better experience for LPs. Um, and uh, so I decided to go ahead and do one. And the response has been pretty uh, interesting so far. That's great. So if you're an accredited investor, definitely check out Pomp and his rolling fund. You could have the opportunity to invest. Um, uh, I want to close out the show today. I want to give you the last word, but thank you so much, Pom, for, for coming on. Um, you know, it was great to get into your brain, which a lot of times, you know, listening to you do the interviews, you know, kind of sit in my seat on your podcast. Uh, it's, it's tough to kind of figure out what, what makes you tick. And I think uh, there's a lot behind the machine here and it was great to bring some of that out on the show. So I really appreciate the time and, uh, you know, tell people if, if you don't mind where, where they can follow you and learn more about you and things like that. Yeah, no, listen, I appreciate you doing this so much. It was fun. Um, the two places are you can just follow me on Twitter at a Pompliano, uh, or you can go and subscribe to the email, uh, pompletter.com. I uh, say with the two places and you can kind of find everything from there. 